Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. I've entitled the morning's message, The Antichrist, subtitle, His Types, Two Old Testament Types, His Character, and then His Fate. And with that, we're actually going to read verses 1 and 2, because this is now the opening of uh, the first seal. And now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat in it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. A little background in case you're joining us for the first time in a study through Revelation. Maybe you've never gone uh, through the book of Revelation before. Most churches don't. Um, Most of mainline Protestantism, most main, certainly all of Roman Catholicism, uh, do not take a literal view. They either allegorize it or they spiritualize it. Um, We take a literal view of the book and um, it is the key verse, I've said this every Sunday, but that's how we learn. <laughs> uh, the key verse is Revelation 1, verse 19. John's on the island of Patmos. All the other apostles have been martyred for their faith, except for John. The Lord kept him around because he wants to give him this revelation. Um, beautiful place. I've been to Patmos one time. And... Uh, John was 96 years old when um, the Lord appeared to him. And he, John saw him and the Lord told him to write the things that he had seen, the things that are, and the things that will be after this. So chapter one is the things that he saw. And he gives a description in chapter one of, of the Lord. John write it down. Then the second division is chapter Two and three, write the things that are. Again, you'll notice that chapter two and three are all red letters. It has to do with that period of time that we call church history, the age of grace. Uh, The church had its beginning at Pentecost. It will um, come to an end at the rapture of the church. It doesn't mean people won't be saved during the tribulation period, they will. We'll have 144,000 witnesses. We'll have the two witnesses. We'll be talking about the two witnesses this morning, as a matter of fact. So we're still living uh, in the church age today. That will come to an end, and the way things are going, it looks like it could come to an end pretty quick. And then we have um, chapters four and five are really not a part of the tribulation period. We have a heavenly scene where we have the Father on the throne, uh, Jesus on the throne in chapters four, but then the Lord comes off the throne in chapter five, and he goes and he takes a scroll that's sealed with seven seals out of the Father's hands, and when that happens, all the saved church sings a song, Um, and we know it's the church because it says that you redeemed us by your blood, and only the church could say that. Um, 
So four and five uh, take place, and as we begin now, these first two verses, the scroll that Jesus took out of the Father's hands, he opens the first one. So we read, the lamb opened one of the seals, and one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, come and see, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. So I'm gonna deal with this uh, part one and part two. Um, The question is, part one, uh, who is he? Part B would be, um, what does he do? We have two things going on here. Uh, He's on a white horse. Question is, who is he? And how do we know for sure who he is? All right, so the first thing I want to point out is the tribulation period, according to Daniel, and it's described many times throughout the book that this is a seven-year period of time. And the Holy Spirit wants us to know that because it's very important, so he tells us in different ways. He divides it in half, the middle point, which is three and a half years. Another way that it says three and a half years is 42 months. Another way you can say three and a half years is 1,260 days. Another way you can say it is time, singular, times plural, that's three, and a half a time. So the Holy Spirit's going out of his way to want us to understand that we're dealing with a seven-year period of time. Now, the reason that I know um, who this person is By the way, if you search most um, commentaries, more than 70% of them will tell you that the rider on the white horse is Jesus. And um, check it out for yourself. Like Tim said earlier, be a Berean. Um, He's not Jesus Christ, um, but I do know who he is. And we'll be getting to that as this unfolds this morning. In Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, God has promised Israel 490 years that he would work with them. When Jesus came the first time, 483 of those years were fulfilled. And then we have a gap. And we are introduced to the people that are going to destroy the temple in Daniel 9 verse 26. And then it tells us that um, the people of the prince who is to come, we find that in verse 26, and actually we're going to be going there in just a little bit so you don't have to turn to it now. But in verse 27, it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The he there is a reference to the prince that will come in verse 26. So a week is one year. And there's going to be this covenant. You might call it a peace treaty or whatever you want to call it. But God owes Israel seven years that he's going to deal with them. Most of Israel today is secular. There are some messianic believers, but they're in the minority, but they're there. And it says then in the middle of the week. So here we have, again, even in Daniel, drawing our attention to a special event that takes place right in the middle of the seven-year period of time. Um, In the middle of the week, in other words, three and a half years into the seven-year period of time, 
He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, there's a lot of implication here. That would imply that this yet future seven years, there's going to be a temple because the sacrifices and offerings take place at the temple. And then it says, on the wings of an abomination shall be one who makes desolate even unto the consummation which is determined is poured out to the desolate. We have a word for that. It's called the abomination of desolation. And nobody less than Jesus Christ himself, if you're taking notes, says that what I just read to you is true because in Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, parentheses, those who are here understand. In other words, you better know Daniel pretty well. So he's saying that Daniel is not only a prophet, but when you see the abomination of desolation, that's verse 27 that I just quoted. Now, we know, and we'll get to Revelation 13 earlier, as we get to the types, that none other than the Antichrist himself is gonna go into the temple and declare himself to be God. This event is called the abomination of desolation. So let's answer our first question. Who is the rider on the white horse? It has to be the Antichrist. It can be nobody else other than the Antichrist. Well, what does he do? Part B of verse two, he has a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out to conquer and to conquer. The world is gonna swear allegiance to this man. And let's just stop for a second and this is in my notes, I'm sort of winging it here. Some of you are thinking, so what's new with that, Dwight? <laughs> um, our world is troubled right now. Do you know how blessed we are just to be able to meet and have fellowship together? Uh, we're, guys are praying for the guys in the churches. Um, um, John MacArthur's been back and forth. It was okay, he could do it, and then it was overturned, and now they overturned it again. So they're this big battle going on of just being able to go to go to church but the average person that you work with that isn't saved they're going through trauma um, the first time that this last week that I actually heard our local police department address it openly and say look um, anxiety suicides and uh, abuse in the home, um, trauma. And I couldn't believe that. I'm wondering why aren't they saying something about this? Well, they finally did. And the numbers are very, very high. And they're starting to acknowledge the trauma that our world is going through right now. Even as believers, we go through trauma with this. And um, uh, I'm saying that only because if you think this is giving people trauma. Um, We know that this is, the numbers are greatly inflated. We know that it's, I I personally um, only wear a mask if I have to. Um, As your pastor who cares about you, I'll tell you not to wear one because there's more damage being done to you by one that's wearing them than by wearing them. And um, some people are aware of that and some people aren't. But the numbers, more and more is coming out every week, just how much of a sham this is. But I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. 
But I'm saying that the people, they list, uh, this many people died this week. Oh, by the way, they, we didn't mention that they're over 80, they're in nursing homes, and they have a lot of preconditions. Um, where did I hear what state said that of all the cases in their state, one person has died? Just one. And I better get back on track because I'm already off track. <laughs> but I'm saying it to make this point. If this can affect the whole wide world, the Bible says that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to deceive the whole world. That's a pretty mind-boggling statement. But what do you think is going to happen when millions of people suddenly disappear? What do you think the world is going to think about that? I got up this morning, and this isn't a part of my notes. This is what was going through my head. Marilyn Ferguson. Has anybody ever heard of Marilyn Ferguson? Probably because you're Christians. Uh, she wrote uh, The Conspiracy Theory, um, she's from 1981. She's a full-on New Ager. And from their perspective, um, of course, they believe themselves to be God. And it's just a matter of you realizing it. Um, but she sees a problem. And she sees the biggest problem is the need for unity in a one-world government, or we're going to kill ourselves. Now, this is typical thinking of a person who isn't born again, who doesn't have the hope that we have. So I actually Googled her this morning trying to get the quote that I was looking for because it's been years since I quoted her. Her quote was, um, we're going to go through, what is her terminology exactly, an evolutionary epiphany, so to speak, which is another way of saying all the people that will not go along with the agenda, what she, um, uh, uh, the Aquarian conspiracy in a nutshell, is the evacuation of all those who will not go along with her New Age ideas. She's talking about a rapture, literally people being dismissed from planet Earth. Just get rid of them. How? Well, they're just, it's gonna be an evolutionary leap in our development. And um, I know it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, but I woke up with Marilyn Ferguson going through my mind this morning, so I had to, had to Google it up. But psychologically, what's that going to do to a person's psyche when millions of people are no longer here? And then Second Thessalonians talks about the lie. That's what got me thinking about her. There is explanations out there for the rapture of the church. That could be the lie. But whatever it is, it's going to be very persuasive. And they'll be looking to anyone with any answers at all that can bring collective unity together. So that's this guy right here. This is who we're talking about this morning. When does he come on the scene? Right after, right after the rapture of the church. How do I know that um, uh, he'll be there the full seven years? Because he's going to, we're going to see this morning he's going to kill the two witnesses in the very middle of the tribulation period. So that means he has to have been there and the two witnesses from the beginning. And um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because these are part of my notes. So my point so far is who is he? The rider on white horse is the Antichrist. What is he going to do? 
He's going to go out with a bull and conquer. Now, there's some misconceptions here, and one of them is that for the first three and a half years, it's going to be a glorious place, and uh, there's going to be a sort of a renewed prosperity and uh, a renewed joy because of the oneness that the world is experiencing. Well, that isn't exactly true. As you look at the seal judgments, um, they're bad enough because one quarter of the world's population is going to be destroyed just in the seal judgments. Then we go on to what we call the trumpet judgments or the third judgments. And one-third of um, the grass... I'm starting to wonder if that one hasn't already started. (laughs) Uh, One-third of the trees, one-third of the ocean, one-third of all fresh water is destroyed. We call them the third judgments. But it intensifies, and then the last set of judgments is called the bowl judgments. And we call that the, the great tribulation, and that begins after the first three and a half years. So... With that being said, um, he doesn't come out. He is called the man of peace. As a matter of fact, we're going to read a verse that says, by peace he will destroy many. But how is he doing it? Well, he's got a bow and arrow in his hand. And he is engaged in bringing um, the world together under himself. Now, evidently, we're going to read later that it's going to be divided up with ten kings. Three of them aren't going to want to go along with this. So you can see where there's confrontation. we got confrontation going on because there's three countries in the world that don't want to get behind him. So he has to deal with them. And so the idea here is, what is he doing? Well, he's conquering. He is a conqueror. And, um, of course, his association with Satan will be, we'll be looking at that this morning And God is actually going to give um, the devil his time. He's going to remove that restraining force, and he's going to have his time. So, um, chapter 6, verse 1, is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. We read in Daniel 8, verse 25, part of this conquering... It says, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace destroy many. At the beginning, remember, he has a peace treaty that begins a seven-year period of time. By peace he shall destroy many. He also shall stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hands. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is is his fate. So here, it tells us that he is going to actually come against the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming. But he's going to be broken. That means nobody's going to be touching without hands. That's what the Lord's going to do to the Antichrist. But that's the end of the study. All right. More on Daniel 8 later. Let me just give you some of the names attributed to the Antichrist. Don't worry, that was a safe cough. Okay, in Daniel 7 and 8, he's called the little horn. In Daniel 8, he's also called the king of fierce countenance. Daniel 9, 
the prince which shall come. Daniel 11, the willful king. In the New Testament, Paul calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition, the wicked one. John, in 1 John 2.18, calls him the Antichrist. Revelation 13, verse one, calls him the beast. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come, and there's an implication here of the Antichrist, if another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Now, we're gonna know his name, because if you don't know anything about the book of Revelation, everybody knows 666, right? The name or the number of his name. So this guy's got a name, whoever it is. And it's not Trump, just so you're clear on that. Okay. All right. In First um, John 2, it says, Who is a liar, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist. So now we're told there's not only a being, singular Antichrist, but there's a spirit of Antichrist. What is it? Anyone that denies that the Father and the Son, or in other words, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the spirit of Antichrist. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, his deity, is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. That's 1 John 4, verse three. Now I mentioned the three subtitles. The first one is Old Testament types of the Antichrist. So let's go back and um, uh, let's go to uh, Daniel chapter three, for starters, as a type. Of course, Daniel three is um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Um, Children of Israel are in captivity at this time. And he has a dream in chapter two, Daniel interprets it for him. And he makes an image out of solid gold, actually in defiance to the dream that we have in chapter two. He makes this image out of all gold. So what's interesting about it here, let's just read verses one through six. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubics and it's with six cubics. Interesting numbers for an image. And he set it up in a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered together to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, 
that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, then you'll fall down and you will worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fire. In other words, you bow down, worship, or you die. Height, 60 cubits tall, width, 6 cubits wide. Now I'm reading from you what's going to be in the future. We'll we'll be there, but I'm not going to have you turn right now because I want to stay in Daniel, so you don't have to flip as much. I'm quoting Revelation chapter 13. And um, it is the false prophet who is speaking and he says concerning the beast who had been assassinated and came back to life. I'm quoting Revelation 13 starting with verse 12. The he exercised all the authority of the first beast as a reference to the false prophet. And if, if we have... Um, an example to compare it to, um, it, it would be like John the Baptist to Jesus. He was a, a speaker for him, and he had authority, and he caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. Now we'll come back and talk about that. And he performed great signs so that he could even make fire come down from heaven on the sight of man. And he deceived those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwelt on the earth to make, notice, an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And it was granted to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the beast to be killed. How interesting. So what do we have here? We have a type. An Old Testament type of uh, Nebuchadnezzar demanding to be worshipped, and if you don't, you die. What does the Antichrist do? Well, he makes an image of himself, and this one can talk. Uh, Ten years ago, if I was given a study, I, I thought, well, how does that happen? Is there a demon inside of it today? Uh, Google artificial intelligence. They got them all over the place. They got robots that are walking and talking and walking your dog and doing your dishes and they can do it. We have the technology today to do it that way if that's the way it comes about. It might be something completely different. And he caused both both great and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on the right hand or their forehead and no one could buy or sell. I'll be talking about that in a little bit except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. It is a type. So our first type would be Nebuchadnezzar's image. And we find an example of it in the New Testament. Another type, if we're still in Daniel, Um, Let's go to Daniel chapter 8. And we have um, a type here. Daniel chapter 8, picking it up in verse 
verse 9. A little bit of a background here. Chapter 8, um, Daniel zeroes in on the um, Medo-Persian Empire being overtaken by Alexander the Great, uh, the Grecian Empire. So that's leading up to verse 9. And so what we read in verse 8, the male goat uh, was very great, became strong, the large horn was broken, and four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Let me explain that to you. When Alexander the Great died, he was world emperor. And who would it be given to? Well, it was taken over by four of his generals. So the four horns that we have in view here are the four generals that took Alexander the Great's place, but they're still in power. Um, The Grecian Empire is in control in verse eight. Now I have to make this distinction because we're gonna be jumping into the future here just a little bit. What I'm about to read next is the little horn, but I want you to notice where it comes from. It comes out of the Grecian Empire. Verse nine, and out of one of them, one of the four generals, would have been a Syrian one, Seleucus, a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land, and it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And he even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of the the sacrifice was cast down. And because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice. And he cast truth down to the ground and he did all this and prospered. What's he talking about? It's a reference to a man whose name is Antioch Epiphanes. Antioch Epiphanes on his way back from a victorious battle with Ptolemy, one of the other Alexander generals from Egypt, he stops off in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he defiles it by pouring swine's broth and then sets up a a monument of Jupiter. And this is a fact of history. Again, do your homework, follow through with it. But it raises a question because now the temple is defiled. So now we have a couple angels in 13 and 14 that are talking to each other. And they say, "How I heard a, one speaking and the other, to, to the other holy one. And one said to the other one, well, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? Uh, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And the other guy has the answer. And he said it will be 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Well, this is taking place um, during that period of time, actually, uh, between um, um, the end of Malachi and beginning of Matthew. And It is roughly, that's 2,300 days. Basically, it's about a six and a half, seven year period of time. And basically, there was a man who was a priest whose name was Judas Maccabeus. 
he was so incensed that this atrocity had happened in the Holy of Holies that he goes against Antioch Epiphanes and the Syrians and he's victorious. And it was during a six or seven year period of time that they came back, they cleansed the temple and it was once again profitable to be used in worshiping the Lord. So my point is simply this. This little horn that we're talking about here cannot be confused with the little horn that I'm gonna read about in verses 22 through 25. Um, Let's pick it up in verse, oh, 23. It says, um, I need to go back to, I wanna go, I want to go back to 17 so that you, you understand that there's a shift going on here. And Gabriel is the one speaking. And I heard a man's voice between the bank of the law who, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand what's going on here. Explain it to him. And so Gabriel comes to Daniel. And he came near where I stood, and when I came, I was afraid. And I fell into my face, but he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright and he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. What did I say one of the names of the tribulation was for? Time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, but also the indignation. So what we have here is a tribulation period for at the appointed time the end shall be. What will be? All right, verse 23. In the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgression has reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. We'll read in Revelation 13, none other than the devil himself gives power to the Antichrist. So it's not by his power. And he shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart and shall destroy many in their uh, posterity. Uh, He shall rise even against the prince of princes. Antioch Epiphanes died a natural death. This one is gonna be broken, but without human hands. Clearly a reference to the second coming when the Antichrist is defeated by him. Is everybody tracking with me so far? We got two little horns here. One's history, Antioch Epiphanes. And um, the other one um, is a reference to an event that hasn't happened yet. J. Vernon McGee puts it this way, and I like the way he phrases it. And I'll just quote a paragraph from him. Gabriel, in the explanation that follows, will make it clear that Antioch Epiphanes is but a picture in miniature of the coming Antichrist. 
For at the time of the end shall be the vision. Notice that it is for the time of the end, not the end of time. How many times have we heard people say, oh, you Christians believe that the end of the world is coming? Don't believe that at all. (laughs) The end of the world uh, is going to be made new, and then it's going to exist for another thousand years after that. So I don't believe that that the time is going to end until after the Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth, which is at least 1,007 years away. Good place for it, amen? Good, I know you're tracking with me. Nowhere in the Bible are we told about the end of time, the time of the end. Uh, It locates a complete fulfillment of this prophecy in the period which our Lord Jesus Christ called the Great Tribulation. The man referred to is the Antichrist, also called the man of sin, and the little horn of chapter seven. This prophecy goes beyond the immediate future and is projected into the distant future. Even in our day, it is still future. Antioch is merely a type of the other little horn who will come at the end of the time of the Gentiles which is made abundantly clear by the use of these eschatological terms. Or eschatological simply means the study of things of prophecy. And that's all that means. All right, enough with the types. Let's get into his character, switching gears a little bit. Go back to Daniel chapter seven, verse seven. And I need some clarification here. Verse seven, again, in a... In chapter seven, we have, um, it's, Daniel seven is the same thing as Daniel two. Uh, but in Daniel two, it talks about the world empires in a form of metallic images. Head of gold, chest of silver, everybody with me on that? All right, well, Daniel seven is the same way, except in, instead of using a metallic figure, it uses animals to re- represent who they are. It says, I was on my bed, I was dreaming, I had a vision, and four beasts came out, verse three, from the sea, and they were different. The first one was like a lion. That would be Nebuchadnezzar. And he had eagle's wings, and I watched till the wings were plucked off, and he was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to him. Well, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He went crazy for seven years. And then after that period of time, his senses came back. All right. Who came after Babylon? And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. That was the meat of Persians. But instead of being represented a chest of silver, here they're represented as a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in his mouth between his teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. All right, who succeeded them? After that I looked and there was another like a leopard. This is in reference to Alexander the Great who was known as probably the greatest military genius of all times, and that he moved extremely fast to win his victories, which had on his back four wings of a bird. Well, what did we say earlier about uh, um, Alexander? When he died, his four generals t- took over. Here the representatives four birds. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now verse seven ties into verse six. After this I saw my night vision, and behold, a fourth beast. Now we're talking about Rome. 
dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, what did the image have? Had ten toes. So what we have here is something that has been, but also something that is going to be, because when we get to Revelation 13, we're going to find that the Antichrist is over ten kings. So that's where we're connecting the dots here. I've talked about this often in scripture. You will have a gap in time. And the one I use most, where it's most clear is in Zechariah. That's where we'll be on Wednesday night. And uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9 talks about Jesus riding the donkey. That was fulfilled on Palm Sunday, April 6, 32 AD. And then verse 10, it jumps all the way into the millennium. And there's a gap of 2,000 years. Because in verse 10, it says the same guy who's riding this donkey is going to reign from sea to sea. Well, that didn't happen in Jesus' time. He went to the Mount of Olives and went to heaven. No, during the millennial kingdom, he'll be reigning from sea to sea. What's your point, Dwight? There's other places. I'm only going to give you just one for the sake of time where we find gaps by thousands of years. And we find it here. Because in verse eight, I was considering the little horns and there was another little horn coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out of the roots. And there in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. And now his character, he's got a big mouth. Speaking pompous words. In other words, he's full of himself. How, by the way, what's the greatest sin in the world? Pride. What's the middle letter for pride? I. I is the problem. (laughs) Use is the problem. And pride is the greatest sin. It was that sin of pride that entered into Lucifer's heart that caused him to be cast out. And so here, the pompousness is a reference to the Antichrist, him wanting to be worshipped so much. This isn't in my notes, but it's in my head. That when he tempted Jesus, what was one of the temptations? If you'll just get down and worship me, then I'll give you all this stuff. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you. All I want is for you to worship me. And the Lord said, get behind me, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. Another good place for an amen. Amen. So, uh, a little bit of his character. Let's look at his lineage. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9 for that. Where does he come from? All right, Daniel chapter 9. There's so much in here, I'm I'm only going to be able to skim. Again, this is a reference to Daniel's 70th week where we began our study this morning. We find in Daniel 9, verse 26, a prophecy of when the Messiah will be executed. So I'll read verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. My friends, that's the whole gospel right there. Jesus came, he was executed, but not for himself, but for me and for you. 
And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come, now this would all be future tense, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that the Romans did this in 70 AD. But what I want to draw your attention is, and the people, that's Rome, of the prince who is to come. In other words, there's an association here. That the prince who is to come, referring to the Antichrist, I'll show you in just a second, is directly tied into Rome. Now, Rome never died. We talked about this last week. It deteriorated from within. And we say that the Roman Empire is going to be revived again. And the overseer of that, they, the Romans came, destroyed the city in a sanctuary, fact of history. And the end of it will be with the flood until the end of war desolations. All right? Another gap between verse 26 and 27. 69 of the weeks were fulfilled, or 483 years when Jesus died. Time stopped. For Israel, the clock stopped. And we've been living in the church age. But the church is out of here pretty soon, my friends. And as soon as the church is out of here, tick, 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 tick. We have seven years that God owes Israel. So there's a gap between 26 and 27 where it says then. And the he here is a reference going back to verse 26 is the prince who is to come. And we've already established that he is the Antichrist. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. One week is seven years. And in the middle of the week, he will bring an end of the sacrifice and offering with an event that's called here the abomination of desolation. So his character and his lineage, I should say, is that he is a part of the revived Roman Empire. And I thought I had that one down pat until I did a study this time through because I had some problems with some verses in the New Testament and I'm teasing you right now for where we're going. You know the great thing about continually going through the Bible is you're continually finding little golden nuggets that were never there before. And you go, I never saw that before. I've been doing this for quite a while. And when I came across this one, I got so sidetracked um, trying to figure my dilemma out because I know that he has to be somebody that comes from the revived Roman Empire. Clearly, the scriptures teach that. But it also teaches something else. Got your attention? Good. (laughs) Let's turn to, um, here he's called the prince who is to come. Some people have been confused by certain books that have been written called um, um, The Antichrist is an Assyrian and um, made a lot of money off of his book. And so my answer to that argument is that it's flimsy at best and this is solid as a rock in Daniel chapter nine where it clearly says he comes the people of the prince who is to come directly, categorically to, ties him in with the revived Roman Empire. Why is he then called the Assyrian? Well, as I thought about it, do you know that Paul was a Roman? 
Everybody here know that Paul was a Roman? They beat him up one time. And Paul says, you guys are in trouble. You just beat up a Roman. You're a Roman? Well, what are you doing living in Tarsus? You see, Paul lived in Tarsus, but he was a Roman. So I'll just let you think about that one for a while. Okay, more of his, his character. Let's go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11, picking up with verse 36. I should say, um, most of chapter 11 um, deals with warfare and um, it changes. There's another gap between verse 35 and 36 and it just deals with the Antichrist and his character and here he's called the willful king. So let's pick it up in verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemy against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. Well, what is the tribulation called? The wrath of the lamb. Revelation 6, verse 17. And shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done And he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of woman, nor regard any God, for he magnifies himself above them all and everything. But in their place he will honor a God of fortress, and a God of which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things, And he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. And he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many. And he divides the land for gain. Is that an issue today? Dividing the land of Israel? Oh yeah. And boy, can I get sidetracked there but we're just gonna leave it and stop at verse 39. Here he's simply called the willful king, and I take you there again only to show you the nature and the character of him. Turn with me please to 2 Thessalonians chapter two. More information about the Antichrist. And I like to remind people of this. Paul was only in Thessalonica for less than a month. Okay, and um, I've often heard it say, well, you shouldn't be teaching Bible prophecy of Revelation. People just can't understand it, you know. That's because the pastor doesn't understand it (laughs) or the theological college that he come out of. They don't teach it or understand it. So my point here is they're three weeks old in the Lord and Paul gets upset with them because he's explained this to them in 1 Thessalonians. Explain what? The complete gospel, the day of the Lord, the rapture of the church, the man of sin. I mean, he had to be doing a lot of Bible studies in three weeks to come up with all that. <laughs> so let's pick it up. And uh, there's some confusion because there was tribulation taking place at this church. And um, they're thinking, well, we must have missed the rapture. So Paul has to write 2 Thessalonians, says, simmer down, simmer down. 
Verse two, don't be shaken in mind or troubled as though we sent this letter to you. So either somebody got up and gave a prophecy or somebody wrote a letter and it caused them to be afraid. I say, Paul, cut them some slack. They're three weeks old in the Lord. As Then he says, as though the day of Christ had come. Now the day of Christ is that period of time of judgment that's going to come. He says, don't worry about it. You're not in it. Why? Because this has to happen first. Number one, don't be deceived by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away come first. The word there is apostasia, two trains of thought. My good friend, Dr. Tommy Ice, believes it's the rapture. Uh, Most people believe it's falling away from solid biblical teaching. I sort of lean towards that one because that's what I see happening. And then it says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So where are we this morning? Revelation chapter six, verse one. The very beginning of the tribulation period. And now Paul is saying, look, you're not in the tribulation. You can't be. Because there's gonna be a falling away first, and then the first thing that happens, the man of sin is revealed. How do we know it's the Antichrist? Well, he opposes and exalts himself all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now remember in Daniel, it said he will take away the daily sacrifices and offerings. And here it says there's a temple because he actually goes in it. Just like Antioch Epiphanes defiled the temple by pouring swine's broth and putting up a a statue of of Jupiter, the Antichrist does it himself. No, he goes right into the temple. This event is called the abomination of desolation. (laughs) Verse five, I have to chuckle. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? (laughs) Cut him some slack, Paul. And you know what is restraining that he may be revealed at his time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. We did an in-depth study on that a couple weeks ago. And when the lawless then will, will be revealed. Okay, this morning if you leave here, I want you to know how you know who the lawless one is. How is he revealed? Well, as soon as you see somebody sit down and make a seven-year agreement for the Middle East, then you will know who the Antichrist is. And the law, here he's called the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception and those by those who perish but they did, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. Hmm. I wonder if it's Marilyn Ferguson's explanation or some other one. We don't know. Uh, they all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we find here... Um, We can go to Revelation chapter 13 at this point and begin to connect all these dots. Excuse me. Revelation 13, and we find in verses one through seven, what has happened in verse 12 is important. 
we know that chapter 12 is right in the middle of the seven-year period of time. How do you know that, Dwight? Well, between 7 and 12, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels lost, and they were cast to the earth. And it says in verse 12 that when he realized that the devil has come down having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Well, that doesn't say three and a half years. No, but it does in the next couple of verses. When the dragon saw, another name for the devil, that he had been cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who is Israel, who gave birth to the male child, who is Jesus. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle and that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for how long? Time, time, and half a times from the presence of the serpent. So that's how we know exactly when this is taking place. And serpent spewed water up like a flood for the woman that he might cause her to be carried away. He tries to destroy Israel. The rise of anti-Semitism is on the news every single night. But the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the water and the dragon spewed out out of his mouth. Then what does he do? And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's got three and a half years. He knows he's got a short time. He's got one card to play, and that is to somehow get rid of all the Jewish people. And that's the only card he has left to play. All right, this is where I got really sidetracked. And... um, I said, look, you can't have it both ways. What do you mean? Well, in chapter 13, one through seven, we're told that he is assassinated. And the deadly wound in verse three was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him. And so we find in these uh, verses here that he was given a mouth speaking great things and given authority to continue for 42 months. Another way of saying three and a half years. So we know exactly where we are when, and we've already read this, that the false prophet makes an image of him Worship the image or you die. It's that simple. And um, uh, you, you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have um, this mark. Uh, notice chapter 12. Go back to chapter 12. Oh, I covered that. I'm sorry. Um, the last thing we read down here is unless you take this mark of the beast... You will not be able, verse 17 says, you won't be able to buy, you won't be able to sell, except you have this mark or his name. Now, this is where I believe it is so late because of what I see happening right now. What I'm about to read you is two paragraphs 
that have to do with a cashless society. I'm quoting Dr. Johnson Pra from the Canadian Free Press and what's happening in the world as far as it comes to physical money, okay? I quote, he says, cash is lightweight, can have large denominational value, does not spoil, and thus better than commodity money. And then he goes on to say, but from the government's perspective, it is easy to see why they would want a cashless society banning cash under the guise of it being infected by disease or controlling money laundering of criminals and drug dealers and routing out all of our income, every last penny through the banking system helps them better control everything we do, freezing accounts at will, while taxation becomes so much easier, including payments to Obamacare insurance and any financial penalties. Any individual is, will be required to, to pay. It enables government to track with 100% accuracy everything we buy and sell, everything we own, and everything we do. For the, from the people's per perspective, cash is freedom. But the leftists, and I just got a little outpost as a side note, that Nancy Pelosi has already written a bill, introduced it to Congress, that's calling for a cashless society. When it started to go public, they started to block, you know how they black out things? You can still find it online. But the part about the cashless society, I found one guy that still had a copy of it. And it clearly says she's going in to, to vote uh, January 1st, 2021. This is part of the legislation. It's part of the pork fat barrel or whatever they call that. Shove it in with it. But it's, it's part pork, just plain pork. Is that kosher? I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Okay, but main, here's the thing. Mainstream media is attacking it. Um, uh, this pathetic excuses such as cash is physically dirty, expensive, a potentially criminal, and it's obsolete anyway, 19th century technology, happily, happily promoting the war on cash. The media opposition sees the war in cash as another form of uh, population control uh, where people's accounts can be raided and their owners classified as potential domestic terrorists. You can be denied health care, travel, education, and other services if they are marked with a digital star. In other words, they have control over what you can and can't do. Nobody can buy or sell during this period of time. My question is this, if it's as late as it seems, should we be seeing signs of this on the horizon? Doesn't it say when these things begin to happen, look up, because your redemption's drawing nigh? Do you know that Sweden is building a cashless society? In China, mobile payment apps are the dominant form of payment as countless establishments. In Shanghai, the venture capitalist, he has a friend named Eric uh, uh, Lai, told me a story about trying to get his morning coffee 
the morning after a storm had knocked out the internet on his block. No one could buy coffee because nobody had any cash. It was all uh, done by um, trans- transaction. All right, before we close, um, this twisted my noodle like it hasn't been twisted in years. And my problem arose um, before we close with the fate of the Antichrist. I want you to go to Revelation 17, verse 7. And what we have here in Revelation verse 7 is the religious institution that the Antichrist is going to eventually destroy. And in verse 7, when I read it, it's after the woman is riding the beast. Verse 7, it says, An angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And it stopped me in my tracks. I said, what do you mean the beast is going to rise out of the pit and then go into perdition? What does that mean? So I thought, well, let's read the whole thing in context. So I kept going down farther. Uh, Verse 11, and the beast that was and is not is himself also of the eighth. We'll get in a lot of detail when we get to this chapter. But to make my point now, is of the seven and goes into perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Well, we know that from Daniel, right? Ten toes and um, the ten um, crowns uh, who have received no kingdom for yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Here there's no doubt about who's being talked about here. This is the Antichrist and he has power over these ten these ten. They are of one mind. They will give their authority to the beast. And um, let's just leave that there. So here's my question. Wait, no. He's got to be Roman. He can't, he's got to be a man walking around. I believe he's alive today. But if I'm reading this correct, no, he's coming from the bottomless pit. And I thought, you know what? There's somewhere else that mentions that. And that happens to be back in chapter, let me find it real quick, chapter 11. Go to Revelation 11. And what we have here is the two witnesses. And it tells us that they have a ministry for 1,260 days. That's how we know that they will be there at the beginning of the tribulation. But then it says they're going to get killed. So we read their abilities to perform signs and wonders. Again, if you were here on Wednesday night, this was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 4. And verse 7 it says, When they had finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And I'm going, what's going on here? I get up and walk out of the office and I said, Mary, what do you think of this? She goes, I don't know. (laughs) I said, you know, I've torn apart my commentaries and everybody is avoiding this question like the plague. And I said, "But but I'm leaning towards the fact that we got two things going on here. I know that 
he's a prince that's gonna come out of, that he's a man, but at the same time, it's telling us that he comes out of the bottomless pit. What is the bottomless pit? Well, it's called the, the abyss. That's where the demons didn't want to go when they were cast out of, out of the, the, the swine. So verse seven tells us the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit and he kills the two witnesses. So I did my own little study. It says that he goes into perdition. So what's happening here? He comes out of the pit and then he goes into perdition. So I get my blue letter Bible out. I type in son of perdition. It came up two times in the scripture. It came up in John 17 verse 12 and it came up in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. And it only comes up twice in the whole Bible, son of perdition. The first one, I'll read it. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you have given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The other place that occurs is in 2 Thessalonians 2, where we just read. And it's a reference, of course, the first one is Judas Iscariot. And the second one says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the coming away comes first, and the man of sin, the son of perdition. It only comes up twice, once in reference to Judas, and once in reference to the Antichrist. And then I started really getting confused. And I thought, You know, the Lord said some interesting things that he said to nobody else about Judas Iscariot. One of them um, that Jesus said in Mark 14, he said, you know what? It would have been better, Jesus said, about Judas if he had never been born. And then another place, what he, if you're taking notes, John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, to the 12 disciples, did I not choose you the 12 and one of you is the devil? And I go, oh, oh now I'm really getting my head tweaked. And I, I sort of was just so overwhelmed by studying, I thought, well, I'm just gonna go home. So then we read at the Last Supper, if you're taking notes, in Luke 22, verse one through three, The Last Supper, verse three says, then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. There's only two people in the Bible that were told that the devil personally possessed. One is Judas Iscariot, and one is the Antichrist. So I go home, scratching my head, more confused than ever, and um, when I got home a little bit later, I got an email from Mary. She couldn't let it go either. And she said, I've been doing a little research. You know, Mary. (laughs) She said, do you know that A.W. Pink agrees with you? And she sent me his article. And it only even tweaked my mind even more. Okay, before I go any farther, I want to make something really clear. What I'm about to quote is A.W. Pink. And yes, we're getting really close to closing this thing up right now. So, what I'm about to share with you I find extremely interesting. But don't send me any emails that say that Judas Iscariot is the Antichrist. 
However, I'm not saying that it's not either. Okay? Okay, I'm quoting now from uh, A.W. Pick. He lived in the late 1800s. He died in 1952. Um, He's a big fan of Pastor Chuck. What I have against him, he's a hardcore Calvinist, okay? All right, the question arises is, if Judas and the Antichrist are both called the sons of perdition, are they one and the same? Or are there two sons of perdition? Here we must anticipate. Turning to Revelation eleven seven, we read that the beast that, you, that slays the two witnesses ascends out of the bottomless pit, or the abyss. And that beast is the Antichrist. Now how did he get into the abyss? If he's a man that comes out of the arrived Roman Empire. Well, if there's only one son of perdition, and Judas and Iscariot are one and the same, can you see where he's going with this? Then he got in the abyss when Judas went into his own place. And that's what Jesus has said, that said about no other person in the Bible when they die. He went to his own place. Now he's really got me thinking. And that's Acts one twenty five. if you're taking notes. No other person is that said of in the scripture that he went to his own place. Again, in Revelation 17, 80, said, the beast that thou sawest and was and is not shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, the abyss, and goes into perdition. As this beast uh, is the same beast that slays the two witnesses, is he not antichrist? And he goes on, and by concluding his remarks, um, that he says in his opinion that this is absolute proof that the Antichrist has been on the earth before and that when he comes in the future, he will come from the abyss. Now the question then arises. When the Antichrist, when the Antichrist then arises, when was Antichrist on the earth before? If Judas and the Antichrist um, are one and the same and Judas went to his own place, When Judas came back from the abyss, will he be the Antichrist? And then he sort of closes it by saying this. The author does not insist on this view of Judas and the Antichrist being connected, but with open mind, he accepts it because it seems to be the only logical uh, solution of both Judas and Antichrist being called the sons of perdition. Wait a second, Dwight. Are you telling me that you think after 2,000 years that Judas is gonna come out of his place after 2,000 years? Well, let me ask you this. Doesn't it say in Revelation 20 that when Satan is captured that he's put into the pit for 1,000 years and then after the 1,000 years he comes back again? That's what I started thinking about. All right, let's close it up. Revelation 19, one verse. I know I went way past my time. But it'll give you something to talk about at the baptism. (laughs) Revelation chapter 19. Uh, We're looking at Jesus' second coming. Then I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written which no one knew except he himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, fine and clean, followed him on the white horse. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword that with it he would strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads winepress of the rod of iron. He himself treads winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then in verse 19, he says, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the king of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on a horse against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth, who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with the flesh. The difference here between the two, Antichrist, false prophet, already are in the lake of fire. No no chance of them ever getting out. Verse 21 simply means that these will be um, resurrected after a thousand years and stand before the great white throne judgment, verse 21. But to... Um, rest my case about Satan being, Satan isn't thrown into the lake of fire. And these are the last three verses. Chapter 20. I saw an angel come down from heaven having a key to the bottomless pit. That's the abyss. And a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Maybe that's his place and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished, but then he must be released for a little while. The Antichrist. Old Testament types, his nature and his character, his fate, and some interesting questions. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, I have to pray for Paul Cameron who thought I could get through one verse in five minutes. Be gracious to him, Lord. Seriously, Lord, we thank you that your word has so much to say about this future world ruler and his fate and that he will be broken without hands. We thank you, Lord, that you've showed us these things ahead of time. And as we see the road markers, Lord, the movement towards a cashless society um, and our world in chaos, um, we just are grateful that you've told us these things ahead of time so we can know what to expect. And we have the hope of the rapture of the church. Not that we're trying to avoid any persecution. There's great persecution going on all over the world against Christians right now, and it's only getting worse. But we thank you that um, you've gone before us. I pray for those that are being baptized today and that you bless the rest of our day in Jesus' name. Amen.